Hey, everybody. My name is Jamin, host of Happy Market Research Podcast. Emma Craig, UX research lead at Shopify. Shopify has experienced massive, like insane growth, right? Uh, over the last five years, it's like unprecedented. Valuations are just amazing on that company. Congratulations, Emma, on all the success there. Oh, thanks. I won't take credit for it, but it's exciting to be part of it. <laughs> yeah, no, no kidding. No kidding. So you've been at Shopify for a few years. What did you do before that? Mm, so before Shopify, I had a really interesting job, actually. I worked at a company that outsourced, or sorry, other companies outsourced this company to run their background checks uh, on people that they were thinking of hiring. So I was in the investigative interview sort of team of that company, and I would phone people's references and the previous employers or educational institutions in some cases and interview them about these people basically trying to suss out what type of employee they would be and if it was the type of employee that this future employer was looking for. So yeah, it was really interesting. I think it caught a lot of people off when you're more used to the average reference interview of like, were they productive? Were they nice? And we really tried to get in there because these companies were very concerned about making sure they're hiring the exact person that they're looking for. So, so our topic today is the art and science of a good question. It's hilarious that you started your career in really framing out questions, right? And mm -hmm. then and asking the right one in order to get the correct, you know, to get the, the accurate response, I guess. Yeah. Right. Um, not like it's leading, but you just needed to know if it's a good fit or a bad fit. Mm -hmm. How did you wind up in uh, UX research? Yeah. So that was interesting too, actually, because I started at Shopify uh, in the account management sort of team. Um, and that was the team that was spun up when we first launched Shopify Plus. Now they're called Merchant Success Managers. Uh, but basically your job was to work with these enterprise clients as their account manager and make sure that they were you know, taken care of, you were answering their questions, if they wanted to sort of stress the platform or you know, take it to its most complex, interesting, unique performance, then you're the one that was kind of trying to facilitate that between the plus Shopify plus merchant and the engineers or the data scientists or whoever you needed to make it work uh, in the back end. So I learned a lot about Shopify and how it worked because most of these people were looking how to make it sort of work differently and in new ways. Um, and through that, I wound up speaking to our UX teams a lot because I was learning all of these things and they were really interesting insights and anecdotes and I wanted to be able to share them. But I also knew that these were sort of our, you know, they're the loudest people because they have that direct line. So you'll hear their voice the loudest. And it was just one-offs. None of these could really be generalized to a larger population. And I started to be more interested in finding patterns and themes and talking to more people. And then I sort of, I guess, outgrew my role and became much more interested in the UX research aspect of things. So Shopify being, I mean such a great company to work at, uh, really kind of took me under that wing. I had UX researchers mentor me and then I just naturally grew into the role. The mentorship part is really interesting to me. And I know it's a little bit off topic, but I just want to touch on that because I've actually seen that as a void or maybe an opportunity inside of Consumer Insights. Mm -hmm. it, was, that, was there some like formalized plan along that or was it more just organic? No, there's definitely a plan because I, I left my, I mean, it was an internal transfer, but I left my position and it was managerial at that point. So I left my manager position to become an intern on the UX research team. Got it. 
to which my parents were like, oh God, what are you doing? What is UX research? <laughs> my mom, oh my gosh, she couldn't stop calling it triple X research for the longest time because- Oh my God, UX that is was just- <laughs> epic. I know. It wasn't in her vocabulary. So she was just telling people like, oh, my daughter's, I think it's triple X research. I was like, mom, stop. Please stop saying that. Stop it. Um, <laughs> yeah, so- <laughs> Yeah. My dad, I've been in, I've been in market research for, since 1996. And yeah. it wasn't until I swear to God last year. So 2019, my dad got a survey and he's mm-hmm. 82 and he says, Oh, look, I got a survey in his email. And he says, is this what you do? <laughs> <laughs> I'm either like, I'm either like outsourced technology help. Right. Yeah. So my computer won't start. One of my family members calls me or it's marketing. Yeah. Oh, that's so funny. 20 years later. Is this? Yeah. Good job. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's really funny. I actually, so my degree is in marketing. So I had like some market research experience just from doing internships and stuff over university. And yeah, I, I it was really cool, I think, to start to learn the UX research aspect of things after some market research passed. <laughs> yeah. That's that's very interesting. So gosh. It's a whole can of worms there. The difference between market research and UX research. I'm not. Do you have just like a short bit on that? <laughs> no, I'm not the one to ask about that. I've been, it was like university days. I'm so far gone from it. I'm sure that it's developed in so many ways. I would not want to. Okay. I would not enough. want to give a definition of market research. <laughs> you know, what's funny about that is I'm actually doing an interview on that exact topic later this afternoon. Oh, awesome. I will listen to that interview when it's released. <laughs> Questions. Like, there's this, I don't know if you're a Doctor Who fan or listen to that. He, he always starts with like the, the uh, hero of the show always starts with like, well, you're asking the wrong question, right? So mm-hmm. in order to get to the right answer, you need to have a framework of, you know, a question, what the right question is. And in, in this context, how I'm really thinking about um, a question, it's centric to like at a tactical level with a respondent, right? Mm-hmm. So like framing out for them, I'll just stop talking in one second, but just like, you know, the difference of like, do you find this product interesting, right? Versus maybe more coming around the back door of which of these products do you find interesting mm-hmm. or something along those lines. So I'm interested in it from your perspective. What do you see as the elements of a good question, a well-crafted question that a respondent can answer correctly? Yeah. So I think good interview questions or these, you know, direct questions that you're asking a participant or a respondent um, start with your your bigger question, your research question. <laughs> and I don't want it to get confusing here of, you know, what's what, but before you can start to formulate your discussion guide and understand exactly what it is you want to ask these people when you're face-to-face with them, you have to have your research question and your research objective in mind. So the research question here is essentially seeking to understand why something is happening or what is happening. Um, You're looking to uncover like a process or a need or a challenge uh, that someone's experiencing. So an example would be like, what are the biggest challenges people experience when it comes to taking public transit? And that would be your research question from which you derive all of your interview questions. Um, And you had a really good point about, you know, not asking these pointed direct questions that you just directly ask because half the time people won't actually know the answer or they won't have the answer. But I've learned over the years that if you ask somebody a question, they will answer your question. So whether they make it up or they exaggerate or whatever it might be, 
if you ask them something directly, they'll give you a direct answer. And you can't always be certain that that is true or that they're not just telling you what they think you want to hear. Um, so your interview question, it's there for you to collect evidence and you have to take different angles. You have to like go sideways or like you said, take the back door. Um, if your research question is around the biggest challenges people experience when it comes to taking public transit, your interview question shouldn't be just asking somebody if they like to take the bus. Your interview question could be uh, asking them to walk you through how they got to work last week and kind of take these roundabout ways to understand the, the environment that it is you're researching. I really think that's a nice counterpoint, right? Do you like to take the bus versus tell me about how you get to work, mm -hmm. right? There's this journey mapping that happens at that point, which then places the participant or the respondent in, in kind of a, uh, an emotional state similar to what they experienced when they actually went through that activity. Yeah, exactly. And then they're actually thinking about the context and they're, I mean, hopefully if you're a really good interviewer, they're experiencing how it felt. So you're not always just asking kind of like the frontal lobe top of brain them, hey, do you like taking the bus? Uh, sure, I take the bus. Yes, I like taking the bus. You're getting them back into their experience. You're, you're placing them situationally so that they can start to tell you about their experiences and their feelings with more texture. Yeah, a good question places them situationally. That's, that's like a pullout quote for sure. <laughs> the other side of it, is do you like to take the bus? So what are common mistakes in framing interview questions? Yeah, so again, asking directly. Um, common mistake though, and I'm sure if you're interviewing other people for this, they'll say it too, but I'm going to say it because I still see it all the time and I still see myself start to do this, but it's asking questions that aren't open and neutral and non-leading. Which, of course, that's interview training 101. Like, don't ask a loaded question. Don't ask a leaning question. But I think I've started to see, I think it's because we're so naturally inclined to demonstrate that we understand another person or that we're listening to this other person or we're connecting with them. And in, you know, normal day-to-day -day conversation, we signal that to somebody else by expressing, like, a shared or a mutual understanding, but when that happens in an interview, what winds up happening is you, you're suggesting their answer or you're putting words in their mouth. So if the question is like common mistakes, it would be asking those leading questions. And it can be really uncomfortable, but you have to strip your questions down as much as possible. And you, you have to get over looking smart in front of other people and be okay sitting there and asking just what might feel like a really dumb question, but giving them the opportunity to fill in the space with how they actually think and feel and process this. And the filling in the space part is really interesting because we have a tendency to want to do that mm -hmm. in a conversation or in an, in an interview because mm -hmm. you, you want the other person to succeed on, right, on, on both sides. How do you combat that as you're doing interviews? Hmm. So that to me, I think the biggest struggle there is staying silent, like being quiet and letting them answer the question or elaborate on the question. A lot of people will jump to the next question to sort of, you know, get along with it or fill the space. We're really uncomfortable with silent spaces. So I've heard of a few ways of getting around it. I have some colleagues that will actually just count. 
Um, I don't know what that number is, but they'll, they'll pick a number and they'll sit and count to like eight in their head and then they'll let themselves speak. Um, I do a lot of meditation. So when I'm in an interview, I'll keep my feet planted on the ground. And if it starts to feel uncomfortable or I start to feel like I just want to fill the space, I'll actually just take some deep breaths and concentrate on the feeling of my feet on the ground. And it'll really ground me. It's like a little mini quick meditation. And then I also diffuse, you know, my energy out of that area. And once again, it becomes space for my participant to fill themselves. The other challenge, by the way, I just grounded my feet. Oh, good. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I love that. Um, The other thing that that you referenced is this desire as humans to connect with one another at an emotional level, right? Mm-hmm. So, and that's very important to us. And yet sometimes that can get in the way of truth, right? Mm-hmm. Have you seen, you, in other words, we want to agree with one another is what I'm trying to get to, yes. right? Have you, have you seen that play out in, in interviews from a respondent perspective where they're just like trying to like the thing that you're putting in front <laughs> of them because they want you to feel good about yourself? Yeah. Uh, and then how do you combat bat that? Of course, you see that all the time. And you, I mean, it starts with you, the interviewer. I think it's easy to be unaware of the signals we send because they are so subtle, but just things like nodding your head or shaking your head or your facial expressions, every tiny, tiny movement, the other person often unconsciously is watching as a way of receiving feedback about how well they're performing. Um, so to combat that, I make sure that, you know, I'm, I'm very neutral. Again, grounding myself really helps. I say thank you when they answer a question, which feels weird because I think we're inclined to say like, oh, that's super interesting or, oh, weird. Okay, next question. Uh, but that's influencing it. That's giving them feedback about how well they've done or how interesting or correct they've been. So if they answer a question, I just say, okay, thank you. And then I'll move on. And you feel a bit like a robot. You feel a bit kind of silly, but your job as the interviewer isn't to be their friend or to, you know, really connect with them. Your job is to collect evidence to support the research question that you're asking. I'll add, it helps being a researcher and not the designer. And I'll often start my sessions with, by saying, um, you know, this is a piece of work that I'm looking into on behalf of a team here. I didn't do this myself or like, these aren't my sketches. So there is no right or wrong answer and you can't offend me. And just kind of started off with like, you're not going to upset me if you tell me this is garbage. If anything, you're going to be helping us much more if you do. Tell me the baby's ugly. Yeah, exactly. The worst question you've ever seen. We've all got them. I know. Right. (laughs) And it could, I'm assuming this is, I mean, there's two lenses. One, it could be like you've actually done or the other is, and probably more probable is you've been exposed to, right. As a respondent or participant. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I I mean, I receive, I'd say like questions that I get in emails. I always send them to fellow researchers and be like, look at this garbage, but I'll, I'll speak about interviews because that's what we're talking about. And I'll speak about myself because I, uh, I did this a lot when I started out. And I still, when I write my questions, will notice if I'm doing it and try and undo it. But it's anything in the future. So we really want to ask people to predict things in the future. It seems like a good way of finding out information. So a really you know, simple example would be, how often do you picture yourself using this? 
you know, maybe in the interview, you've exposed that this is something they're interested in. They think it would be very helpful. It would, you know, ease all of these pains and challenges that they have. And then you want to say, okay, well, like, how often do you think you would use it? But people cannot give you a realistic idea about the future. They don't know. They will make it up. Like I said, if you ask somebody a question, they will answer that question. But it probably won't be true because they don't know well enough if they'll use something or if they'll do something in the future. I think an example I use a lot is like if somebody asked me what I was going to eat for lunch tomorrow, I can't actually, I can give them a guess, but I can't actually tell them. But if they ask me what I've eaten for lunch every day this past week, I'll give them a much better indication of what I might eat for lunch tomorrow or what my lunches look like. So yeah, probably that asking people to predict instead of basing the question in past behavior. Right. And then having to use math and intuition to be able to get to future outcomes. Yeah. I mean, in research, you hear this trope all the time, but it's like, don't ask people what they do. Like watch, you want to observe behavior in research. You don't want to ask them to tell you their behavior. It makes so much more sense to observe it. So in an interview, the closest you can get to that is to ask them to describe past behaviors that they've done because you know those to be true. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Gosh, I really like that. I had, and that caught me a little bit by surprise. I was not thinking it was going to go that way. That's actually something that's very, very insightful. And I've done that quite a bit, being completely completely transparent. the maybe I'm my my bent is more quant right so um my exposure is I literally just saw this yesterday I got a survey it was on a scale of one to ten oh god um how mm-hmm. accurate was our delivery yeah and and I swear to God that was like that is the question and I'm like <laughs> it's such a silly question. <laughs> I I could take, and this is earlier when I cut myself off, I was like, okay, no, we're talking about interviews. I could take a week to talk about NPS, Net Promoter Score. (laughs) They're the worst questions I've ever seen. And I see them every, every single experience, like, except for Shopify, unless someone in some corner of Shopify is sending NPS. Right. Every product, every experience I have is, will be followed up with an NPS and it does not make any sense at all. It doesn't. No. It's so interesting. This and but I'll tell you what's in so this is what I find very interesting. Now we're totally off topic, but this inclusion of NPS in our like act at the activity level where now we're everybody, right? Everybody in the who's buying stuff is being exposed to an NPS question, mm-hmm. probably weekly. And it's starting to inform our culture so that I asked somebody, it happened in our stand-up. Two days ago, um, he happens to be Finnish. And I said, how was your day or whatever uh, yesterday? You know, just like the small talk before. Mm-hmm. And he goes, I would rate it an eight. No. And I'm like, what, <laughs> <laughs> like, what happened? <laughs> what happened? But what was interesting about that mm-hmm. is, and I, so I, of course, I couldn't help myself. I had to dive in. And, you know, he said, well, the, the, the problem is that like in an American culture, if you say good, that means something very squishy. But. You know, for me, it means something a lot more absolute. Mm. Uh, and so I'm trying to like quantify for you a, like a, on a the way that a language that we'll understand mm-hmm. um, so that you can have a, a, an accurate idea, which is really hilarious on so many <laughs> levels. Right. But, I know. <laughs> but 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 I thought it was interesting that you are, you know, you are seeing this like 
this inform this like change in, in how we relate to one another at a human level mm-hmm. really being dictated by this like intrusion of NPS in our lives. This intrusion, yeah, that's a light way to say it. It's the <laughs> sledgehammer right. of NPS. Just- <laughs> and, the problem with NPS though, like we've actually kind of said the same thing here because NPS asks you to predict future behavior. Will you recommend this to a friend? Like it's such a better question would be like, tell me about the last time you recommended a product to your friend. And it feels super roundabout. You're like, no, but I want to know about my product. And I want to know if they're going to be loyal and a brand evangelist, but they don't know that. So you can't ask them that. You need to infer it from their behavior. Um, I heard IBM gave a talk on NPS and Mm -hmm. the flaws, one of their head researchers, and it was fascinating. Oh, yeah. Um, Because they've been doing it for a long, long time at a massive scale. And uh, anyway, so totally divergent. Sorry about that. Emma, thank you so much for being on the Happy Market Research Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. This is fun. My guest today has been Emma Craig, UX Research Lead, Shopify. Everybody, have a great day. If you found value, please take time, screenshot, share on social media, tag happymr.com or whatever. Enjoy your day. <laughs>